before the liturgy began, uh, uh, Ralph Qualls came into the sacristy and checked the reading that he was make, ma making sure that it was the reading he was supposed to read and then commented that it was from the book of Acts, not A-X, but A-C-T-S, <laughs> and that he uh, was one of these incomprehensible passages. So I didn't, I didn't uh, intend to preach on this, but I'll, I'm going to just say a word about it, <laughs> not in terms of homiletic hay, as the former bishop here used to say, but just in general terms. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a passage, it's Acts 8, uh, 26 to 42, I think, and it's about the call of Philip and the Queen Candace of Ethiopia, and this is a passage that is used by Coptic Christians in Ethiopia to say we're the oldest Christian nation, right? The Queen and Philip was baptized, or Philip baptized the eunuch who then went back to Ethiopia and brought the message of the gospel. And so we have this long-standing tradition of Coptic Christianity. I went to an Ethiopian liturgy when I was in Rome in uh, 1975, and it was the group of, you know, all the Orthodox traditions, uh, some of them have connected with the Roman Catholic Church and accepted the Pope, and they're called Uniates. So within the individual, like the Greeks and the Russians and the Ethiopians and the so on, they have people who are there. So this was not a, you know, Ethiopian thing that was what they would have said, the Ethiopians, the real deal. Um, and I went to this liturgy with Father Weil and a bunch of people, and it was five hours long. And there were no seats. So they handed you a staff to lean on. I remember this is... Was, I don't think I'll go again. <laughs> I'm just simply grateful to be a Western, a Western Christian. But here's something else that, that's important because I talk a lot about... Oh, the other thing is when I was in the hospital, I was looked after from time to time by a nurse who was from Ethiopia. And she knew that I was a priest and she told me about being a Copt and being from the Ethiopian church, and she was extremely proud of the fact that Ethiopia was the oldest Christian nation. She was able to speak about this with some, some enthusiasm, and I thought that was very interesting. But as Ralph read along, and we read along or heard along, um, uh, now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. This may be the part that you go, what in the world? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Uh, that's from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And it's one of the suffering servant passages that we read during Holy Week. And so for Philip, he was giving the eunuch... Uh, some of what we call the history of salvation. Because for Philip, this was Jesus that was being described here as the suffering servant. So it is part of their understanding. The uh, As I read in preparation for one of my sermons, Holy Week or Easter, I, I mentioned that um, 
the early Christians found Jesus on every page of the scriptures. Uh, you and I have, uh, or at least I have been, Ernest has been, and some of you have been acquainted with the uh, biblical critical method and so forth. So that's one thing. But they looked at it not necessarily as literalists, actually, because that idea didn't exist then. But they looked at it as a, as a precursor to the coming of Jesus in terms of seeing the whole of the creation as part of the plan of God. So we're seeing this now unfolding uh, in the scriptures. So we read this, and uh, the, the benefit that I got from Ralph on this was the fact that these things sometimes need to be unpacked. It's important. So uh, that didn't do the full thing, but it's... Uh, Yeah, the eunuch was going, huh? That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so today, um, I say all, Father Thomas Keating, when he just speaks about Easter, and uh, in one sense, the whole of the liturgical year, but with a particular intensity during the great 50 days of Easter, he said there, we're introduced to three great theological themes. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And so today we have um, a series of readings about God's love and how we understand what that means for us and how it animates uh, our Christian faith in life. Yesterday, I was privileged to attend. I couldn't, didn't stay for the whole thing. I was not able to do that. But uh, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church was here and was at St. Andrew's Church in Saratoga. And uh, from 9 and 30 until 3.30, uh, talked a, a bit about uh, a number of things that are sort of focused in the Episcopal Church at the present moment, like the five marks of mission and a variety of these things. But the first thing that she asked us to do was for five minutes to sit in silence and to meditate on being beloved of God. Right? And so that when uh, Jesus is described as beloved... That that's not just something that uh, inheres to him only, but by extension, because of him, we are beloved. And to think about what that means. So we waited for five, we did it for five minutes, <laughs> meditated. And then she said at your table, your round table, uh, talk to one another about what came to you during that period of reflection about being the beloved of God. And a couple of people at the table uh, said, you know, I have some trouble with this because I, I did, didn't grow up feeling that I was beloved of God. That was not something that I, I was taught. And ver a variety of comments had to do with saying, um, uh, growing up, the big issue was correct behavior. Growing up had something to do with acknowledging uh, my personal sin and wretchedness. And it is only because of the gracious gift of Jesus on the cross that I am now saved. 
And I'm not sure I feel like I'm beloved of God. And there were others who had no difficulty with this at all and felt that the emphasis in the Episcopal Church on this now is a very freeing and liberating idea. The idea that we are beloved of God and that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And that somehow within that, uh, there is a new freedom and a new peace. So I think it's... uh, important to say that and to sort of give everybody an assignment at the beginning to think about that in the next week. What does it mean? And how do you understand that? And if you have great difficulty, uh, how do you, in some sense, um, begin the process of pushing that to the side? You know? Because I'm going to say in a few minutes more than once that it is important for each of us to have the right kind of self-regard and to love ourselves. And if you don't, you're not going to get that about being the beloved of God. And if you've been told all your life that you're not, then you're going to have a lot of trouble with this. And it's going to be a, a, a job that you're going to have to undertake in order to get it and to make yourself more available. And many of you in the midst of all of this, many of us have been able to be available for other people. But some of this uh, is still there, at least. And uh, today, we have some conversation about that uh, in the biblical witness. Remember that Episcopalians understand uh, what is authoritative for them as the Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And so if I tell you today that these readings are about love, I also need to tell you that the uh, understanding of what love means in the present culture is out there, right? And most people talk about it in terms of being in love with somebody else or trying to figure out when they're in love with somebody else what to do And how are they going to react in this and what thing? There was a PBS show some years ago, I think, uh, and this was, I'm not throwing cold water on it, but just the brain in love, right? (laughs) What sort of uh, uh, hormones are are released as the result of, of, of being in love with somebody, Right? So what, what this is talking about and what the, most of the culture is talking about is the urge to merge, as Herb Cain used to say <laughs> many years ago in San Francisco in the Chronicle, right? The urge to merge, which is the natural uh, inclination and hard wiring of human beings. So there's no use to throw cold water on it, right? It's what eros is in Greek. It's one of the forms of love. It doesn't have to do only with the expression of sexuality. It has the desire for something else, right? And all of those things that attach to that. So it's not bad, but it's not the whole picture. Nancy rolls her eyes when I do this, but I spend some some time, if she's working downstairs and I'm cooking dinner, uh, I'll watch briefly one of those real housewives of... Oh. 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 
Why would he do that? I am on a constant quest for preachable material. I'm serious. And so I'm watching this Real Housewives of Atlanta, New York City, Beverly Hills, God knows what's ones. And here's the thing. All these housewives are extremely well-heeled. They have all the money they need. They can live their life the way they want. If somebody says to them, there's a drought in California and you have to watch your water use, phooey. I'll pay the increase in fees. I can afford to do that. So we have all the clothes, we have all the stuff, and we're going to Cancun, and we're going to go to Amsterdam, and we're going to be there with each other. These girls, women, are sitting around schmoozing. And uh, the level of maturity with regard to how they understand love, which was the way the dean of my, one of the deans of my seminary referred to it, uh, is pretty immature. Now, I have to be careful about this because you meet everybody where they are on these subjects. So that does not mean that they're any less beloved. But it merely means that we are off-center, all of us. And we need somehow to uh, figure that out. Here's a a highfalutin definition, part of which I'm going to read. I decided not to read the whole definition because I thought, Brewer, you've just gotten off into the thing here. But I'll just say this. From a religious perspective, love is considered to be preeminently God's benevolent love. God's love encompasses human love for God, human love for the neighbor, human love for creation, and self-love. And so we need to, to understand that. I would just popped into my head. When I was a kid, I had people say, my, at least nobody in my family said this to me or my brother Ed directly, but you don't want to praise your kids too much because then they'll get a, a, a too high impression of themselves, and you don't want to do that, so don't praise them or tell them that they, they uh, are good people. You want to urge them always to greater heights, you know, in terms of your behavior and how you operate. Now, some of that is necessary because it's called social relations. The early church had big debates. I've told you this before. Would sit together in the first 400 years of Christianity, and they'd sit around and say, did Jesus go through a moral development? I mean, he was the son of God. He was God. Did he go through a moral development like you and I do? Socialization? Get up and brush your teeth? Did he have to be taught this? And the answer was, yes, he did. He's a human being. He was a human being. And we believe that he has brought humanity to a new level, and more to the point that the humanity that uh, we have can be enhanced and it can always uh, become more full and more, more rounded, right? So love is essential and central to this whole idea. So we have John's Gospel, and we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 
And today we read from 1 John, which is probably the best of the three. My Old Testament professor, uh, Joseph Hunt, thought that uh, if we were talking about the canon of the New Testament and thinking about which books you might wish to eliminate and which books you might include that aren't, he said, I'd throw out 2nd and 3rd John and I would add the Didache, which means teaching in Greek. And it's a description of what the early church did and it's information that we use and people in scholarship and in developing liturgies and everything do know about this. So he had his views on this matter and I, I tend, tend to agree with him, although I'm also conservative, so I think that the canon is fixed as it is now. And these other resources are available to us and we use them. And uh, what I think is growing in the scholarly community is let's not just get hung up on the canonicity, but on what it is we might learn from uh, these writings that we possess. So the Johannine community, that's by the way the word you use if you want to talk about John and you want to talk about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, call it the Johannine literature, and they will look at you either like you've lost your marbles, or they'll say, wow, that's deep. And as they say on sports talk radio, that's good knowledge. <laughs> right? Good knowledge. And that's what you want to be able to have. The Johannine community that believed that within their community, love should be the silent partner in all human relationship. Love should be the silent partner in all human relationship. Love is participatory in that we participate in the love of God that God showed for each of us. So let me say a word to you now about self-love, about learning to love yourself. Because this is the hard part, for, for, it turns out, for a lot of people. And how do we learn to do that and have the right kind of self-regard? <clears throat> because most of us have been raised with the idea that to be, to, that to be, uh, have a, be, be selfish in, in this way is considered not good. There's a problem, Right? You don't want to have too high an opinion of yourself, and it's true. Have you met people that you, that you know are uh, people who walk around like they're the world's foremost authority? Yes. Like in, uh, Professor Irwin Court. Yeah. You know. And is, not, is it not true that beauty is in the behind of the beholder? <laughs> I heard him say that years and years and years and years ago at the hungry eye. In North Beach, right? So there's that. But there's the coming to be able to accept yourself as you are with all your foibles and saying that I, am, I now have, through God's love and being beloved, the ability to do something about that internally, to get myself prepared better than I am for relationship. How, how do I get rid of constantly getting up and copying resentments about other people's behavior? You know, a lot of us have difficulty driving. You know, other people's driving, right? Or somebody else is driving and they get mad at you and you can't figure out what it is they're mad about, you know? And I have actually been followed 
over time by people who are so mad about something that I did that I have no idea driving. You know, and I'm a fairly good driver. I haven't gotten in any hot water. So I can't figure it out and uh, so on. But I, in some sense, have those same feelings. Alan Jones, in the YouTube video that it, I, talks about all the time, I talk about all the time, said, my wife and I own one of those smart cars, little dinky car in San Francisco, so it's easy to park. So some guy in one of these dog houses that people are driving around in, <laughs> didn't see Alan driving this thing and almost hit him. And he said, I was so angry, I was so angry about that, that if I had had a gun, I would have shot him. The retired dean of great cathedral. Take out a piece and just take care of business. So these things can occur to a lot of people, and they do. So you need to have the right kind of self-regard. John's gospel, I'll mention it quickly before I st uh, stop, is uh, about Jesus, uh, the image of Jesus as the true vine. Now, if we're all beloved of God, Jesus is the true vine in the community of the beloved disciple, which the community that wrote John's gospel is called. And it, has, it refers to the two dominical sacraments, even though it doesn't mention them explicitly, the baptism and the Holy Eucharist, which are part of our uh, way of understanding Easter. But we can also understand ourselves to be part of the true vine, right? Because we do that by participation. Participation in God's love. And so it's always possible for us to be able to do this. And in the gospel, we're urged uh, to fulfill that goal. Dr. John McQuarrie, in his book that I quote from all the time, said this about love. Love is letting be, not of course in the sense of standing off from someone or something, but in the positive and active sense of enabling to be. When we talk of letting be, we are to understand both parts of this hyphenated expression in a strong sense. Letting as empowering and be as enjoying the maximal range of being that is open to the particular person concerned. So we're back to seeing that the love of God is understood as being engaged in the process of transformation. A lot of people have trouble with letting other people be. Right? right, And we, we're powerless over people, places, and things. We can't will change in others. It is not possible to do that. But a lot of people spend their lives trying to do it, and they become sick or crazy. Right? You can't do it. So learning how to let people be means that sometimes the be part is a person expressing the full range of their of their potential and misusing it mightily. And so how do you handle that? And what do you do? How do you stay connected to somebody you love who has uh, gone off the rails?
or you believe they have gone off the rails. So how do you stay centered in the midst of all that? So the answer that has been given to us in the Bible today is God's love. Right? We're unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven. And by virtue of that, at any time in our lives, we're empowered to plug into that and to be energized by that great and powerful truth. That is what the, the community that wrote John's Gospel and the Johannine Epistles believed, and I think we should too. Amen. Amen.